The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's uh, make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to refocus, re gear, get ready to uh, focus on a good study tonight in John 15. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that we have this time to study your word, to focus on what our Lord taught, what you have provided for us in your eternal plan as church-age believers to be reminded of these eternal truths that are so important for our day-to-day spiritual life, spiritual growth, for our relationship with you. Now, Father, we pray that as we study these important principles, that it will be more than just an academic exercise, but it will drive us to a greater appreciation for you and drive us to a more intimate fellowship. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying in Hebrews... 6, 7, and 8, a particular illustration. And to understand this illustration, I am going to some other passages in Scripture that relate to the this whole agricultural imagery that's being used here to teach about the Christian life. So let's just orient ourselves a little bit by going back to this context, and then we will go to our passage this evening, which is in John chapter 15. Hebrews 6, 7 says, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Now this is an illustration of judgment that the writer of Hebrews goes to at the end of the warning section there in Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, talking about the seriousness that faces the believer who goes into spiritual regression so that they can deteriorate spiritually to the point where perhaps it, uh, unless God permits, it is impossible for them to recover. And therein lies the road not to a loss of salvation, but to a loss of of privilege, position, loss of reward at the judgment seat of Christ, loss of blessing both in time and eternity. And it's important to understand this, all this imagery here, because you find similar types of uh, illustrations in the scriptures that deal with the fact that believers are designed to grow, mature, produce fruit in terms of service uh, to God. So we looked at those symbols and we said that the earth represents the believer. 
And it is out of the believer that either you produce that which is profitable for people, the herbs of the field, or that which is unprofitable, briars and thorns. So rain comes and is provided, and that's the provision that God gives every believer. We all have equal opportunity in terms of having the Word of God and the Spirit of God who dwells within us. And we have the production of divine good, represented by the herbs, uh, production of human good, evil, and sin, represented by the thorns and the thistles. And then the one who does the cultivating, the one who cares and is concerned about uh, the production of fruit, is, in this sense, ultimately God the Father, which is comparable to the vine the vine dresser, the one who is the vineyard keeper in John chapter 15, which is where we're going. Now, the other thing we looked at last time as we're doing this, is we begin to look at some other passages in order to understand this. Um, we looked at this chart in terms of judgment, that the judgment that's being talked about in Hebrews 6 is not the judgment at the great white throne judgment, it's not the judgment at the end of the tribulation, but it is the judgment seat of Christ for believers. There is this evaluation based on the word uh, dokimazo that is found in the text. Now, let me back up a minute to the, to the verse in Hebrews. When we look at Hebrews 6, 8, it uses this word rejected, that if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected. Now, that sort of... that. Word that English word rejected is a word that's loaded with a lot of baggage that came from the translator. Makes it sound as if there's either a loss that this person ultimately isn't saved, whether it's the position of the Arminians that they lose salvation or the position of uh, the lordship salvation crowd that well they weren't really saved to begin with. It's uh, the idea that they're not saved. Well, actually skip through some sl the slides here. That word dokimos, there it is on this slide, really should be translated disqualified as it is in other passages. It's adokimos, and it means unapproved, unqualified, unworthy, spurious, and worthless. And so when we recognize that the focus here is on disqualification of that which is discredited, it gives us a different sense of the meaning of the passage, and then we're Going to these other passages, according to a principle of interpretation, the fancy word for interpretation is hermeneutics, and according to a basic principle of hermeneutics, you have what is called the principle of analogy. You all know what that is? See, I just ran across this term. I was reading a book on hermeneutics about four years ago. This is a time-honored principle. I'd never heard it called that before. It's comparing Scripture with Scripture. So... You ha just have to go look at other scriptures. It's, it's called the analogy of scripture. You look at other scripture and compare it. But apparently that's a very uh, time-honored theological uh, phrase that's used there. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 9.27, and where we also have this same word used, adakimas, with regard to um, with regard to the Apostle Paul. Actually, and this slide got converted. Let me just do this so it makes sense. Just a quick fix. There. I don't know how this happened. I just copied the slide over. Next thing you know, there's a little demon in here or something that 
changes things. Okay, disqualify. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He's using in this whole illustration, as we've seen the last two weeks, the, the imagery of a race running in the stadia, the Olympic event that uh, would take place in the Greek games. And so he's saying after everything, you could do something that would disqualify yourself from uh, running in the race or from gaining the victory. It doesn't mean a loss of salvation. Paul would not lose his salvation, but he could disqualify himself in terms of rewards. And so he says he has to daily discipline himself, which I think is a rather pusillanimous translation for the Greek word hupopiazo, which is used in boxing contests context of beating yourself or beating someone bloody. It's the idea of, of a strong, dominating uh, activity. And he's saying, I beat my body. If some translations tr- translate it that way, I beat my body into submission. It's a very strong, uh, strong term. And every time I look at that, I'm always reminded of the in- illegitimate use of the principle of analogy. The illegitimate use of comparing Scripture with Scripture, you always have to be careful. You know, you can come to this passage where it says, I beat my body into submission, and then you go over to Ephesians chapter 5, and Paul tells husbands that they're to love their wives like their own body. <laughs> so you have to be careful how you uh, compare Scripture with Scripture. And here it's simply that he is emphasizing how rigorous his discipline, his self-discipline must be to make sure he does not disqualify himself in the process of spiritual growth. Well, that brings us over to John 15 because we're looking at what, at not the negative, what do you do to get disqualified, but the positive. How does the believer grow? How does a believer become qualified? How does a believer produce fruit? What are the mechanics of the earth producing the herbs, the rain comes upon all of us, but how does this take place? How does God's provided the Spirit, God's provided the Word of God, how does the growth take place? So let's just review these initial six verses. Jesus says, I am the vine, the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He lifts up. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Now, as I pointed out last time, what we see here is another agricultural illustration or analogy. And these agricultural illustrations or analogy uh, tend to uh, be tough for modern 21st century industrialized uh, urban dwellers to uh, relate to perhaps if you've got a little tomato plant growing somewhere you can understand some of this but um, these are very important and I and and from the study that I've done on this 
It's probably true that many of the theologians who have uh, worked with this and come to certain conclusions were not very uh, educated in the entire area of viticulture. And I appreciate a work that was done a number of years ago by now by Gary Derrickson up in, uh, he's now up in Oregon. And in fact, he works with Wayne House up there. And uh, Gary got his master's of theology, I mean, he got his master's, I don't know what it was in, uh, of some kind of agriculture and viticulture, which is the science and study of raising grapes. And then he went to Dallas Seminary. So he was able to combine his previous training in uh, viticulture with the study of the Word and did some tremendous work on the backgrounds for John chapter 15. And many of us are reliant upon his work because it was so uh, beneficial, really helped to understand this particular, this particular process. Now, in the first verse, we realize there are three types of branches that are in the, in the, in the passage. There's the non-fruit-bearing branch. There's the fruit-bearing branch in the second part of verse 2. And then down in verse 6, there's a non-abiding branch. Now, there are those who come along, and they think that the non-fruit-bearing branch, as well as the non-abiding branch, are both unbelievers. And they would take a the, the word that is translated, that I translated lift up, many versions, uh, King James, New King James, NIV, NASB, translate this as takes away or cuts off. And they would take that to indicate that there's either a, a loss of salvation, as some people take it, or that never was truly saved. And that is the basic problem that we have in terms of understanding and interpreting this, the imagery in John 15, 1 through 6. Last time I pointed out several things that you should be aware of uh, to understand the imagery, and I've revamped it and added a few things. So if you've got those notes, I'm going to go through those again. And I have... Eight observations here. First of all, the vine dresser is the father, and the father has been mentioned some 23 times in the context already. Remember the context. It starts on the night before Jesus goes to the cross. He's with the 12 disciples in the upper room, and he is washing their feet. And in that process, he talks to Peter about the fact that uh, you need to have your feet washed. And Peter says, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord said, uh, yes, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you don't have any inheritance, any role, any, any, any portion with me. Technical word there of meros indicating an inheritance portion. And Peter says, well, Lord, wash all of me. And the Lord said, no, you are already clean. Key word there. It's the same word we're going to see here in verse 3. Already clean, indicating everybody there was already saved. And then they had the little uh, episode with... He says, all of you are clean except one. Verse 10 of chapter 13, of course, that's Judas. And then there's the episode where he hands a sop to Judas, and Judas leaves, and 11 remain. And those 11 are all believers. And so from that point on, the middle of chapter 13, Jesus is addressing 11 believers. I think that's very important to the understanding of this passage, is Jesus isn't talking to a mixed group 
He's of unbelievers and believers. He's not talking to a group of unbelievers. The focus here is not helping them understand how to be saved, how to be justified. They already are saved and justified. He's talking to them about how to maintain a relationship with him once he leaves. That's the whole focus of John, about the middle of John 13 through the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He is giving them church-age truth. He's going to be going to the cross the next day. He talks about uh, his relationship with the Father. He talks about the Father sending another comforter. He talks about the Holy Spirit coming, that the Holy Spirit will lead them into all truth and guide them and direct them. And here he talks about their future relationship with him. So the Father has already been mentioned 23 times. And in this context, the Father is presented in terms of one who is particularly intimately involved with them and has a personal caring relationship for them. It's not just some sort of abstract deity out there, the outer reaches of the universe somewhere. Second, as I pointed out last time, the vine's a grapevine, and the hills along the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem would be lined with grapevines at this time. Now, what time of the year is it? It's the night before Passover. It's the spring. Very important to understand that in terms of the analogy that the Lord is going to use here. Use here. Third point, God's supernaturally designed the vine to teach certain things, uh, just as he did with sheep. There are a lot of these creation analogies that you find that are used in the Scripture because God knew what he was going to do ahead of time, And he said, okay, I've got to illustrate certain principles, so I'm going to create an animal or a plant that's going to have certain characteristics so that I can use that to illustrate doctrinal principles. So the vine is useless for anything other than what it produces. You can't use it for firewood. You can't use it in uh, building furniture. You can't go out and build a home out of it. It's it's pretty much useless except for uh, what it produces for the benefit of the uh, vine dresser. Fourth, another thing about gra- the grapevine is that the plants will last the vine dresser for years, decades. The same plants, if they're not destroyed by disease or something else, he goes back and he gets to know those plants. And according to what Gary Derrickson writes, uh, each plant, some plants may seem a little hardier than other plants. And if you try it, if you care about gardens at all, whether it's flowers or, or uh, whether you're growing a, veg- a vegetable garden, you know that some plants just seem to survive everything and others don't seem, seem very frail or weak, just like people. Every plant's different. And so the, uh, the grapes are, are, the grapevines are very different and the vine dresser learns their characteristics and he deals with each one on an individual uh, basis. Fifth, the purpose for planting the vine and the planting of the vine, which is where life begins, important analogy there, is equivalent to salvation. Uh, I mean, the the planting is equivalent to salvation. The purpose for planting the vine is to produce fruit. Ephesians 2.10 is a verse that many of us don't pay a lot of attention to. We know the two previous verses. uh, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We close our Bible. But the next verse starts off with the explanatory 
uh, word in the Greek, gar, meaning to explain why this has happened, why we have this salvation by grace through faith. It is for we are his workmanship. There's that same idea where we see this picture of God as a worker, a vine dresser, a worker. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to sit in Bible class and take notes for the rest of our life. Wait, oh no. Uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I know this may be asking too much for everybody tonight to hold on to one phrase there, but we'll get back to it next week, and that's that concept of walking in them. See, we're immediately talking about the Christian life. This word walk in the Scripture, the Greek word peripateo, means to... Is used as a metaphor for living that step-by-step, day-to-day course of life that we have. So we're created for a purpose. We are regenerated for a purpose, and that is to that God has prepared good work, service that we should walk in them. Now, sixth point, one I also made last week was only mature plants produce fruit. I remember you, you get into these discussions sometimes with people who say, well, I don't know, so-and-so wasn't saved. You didn't see any fruit in his life. Wait a minute, what do you mean by fruit? Only a mature plant produces fruit. Only a mature Christian produces fruit. So let's, you know, we just mess up our old terminology. Immature plants are supposed to grow first. You go through a lengthy stage of growth where it produces, you know, the basic stem growth and leaves come out and then branches. It takes time before there's any fruit production. And if something along the way stifles the growth, then you never get to fruit production. And so many people think, well, I didn't see any fruit. Well, they don't know what fruit is either. There's a lot of confusion on, on just exactly what fruit is, and we will get to that when we get to Galatians chapter 5. It has to do with character, but it takes time for there to be a transformation of character, and that's the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 21 to 22. Seventh, uh, fruit must be distinguished from uh, the growth of the plant. Fruit's got to be distinguished from the growth of the plant. And a lot of times growth can be imperceptible. Uh, you don't see things going on. Sometimes it can be quite perceptible. And eighth, the quality of the fruit is dependent upon the nourishment of the plant, just what goes into it. How many of you all really enjoy getting those kind of pink-colored, hard tomatoes down at the grocery store? You can't wait till your neighbor got a couple of tomato plants and gets some extras and brings them over because their flavor is just so much better. They've been uh, putting a lot of miracle grow on them and watering them and nurturing them, and they just produce great fruit. So you know the difference. With, I mean, it's so hard today to find a decent-tasting peach. Have you noticed that? I mean, you get really good peaches somewhere. You just re- realize that... that you never see anything that's any softer than a hardball at the grocery store. It has to do with, of course, the time they pick it, but also uh, nourishment, water, all of these other factors uh, that go into the plant. Same is true for a believer. 
And there's a lot of believers who just don't get the right nourishment in terms of the teaching of the Word of God. And, of course, we all have the same potential, but what actually is provided or what is supplied is different in terms of our experience. So that's just some introductory material we went over last time. Now, we get into verse 1, and we read, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus tells us what the symbols represent. Now, that's important in Scripture because when it comes to interpretation, God doesn't expect us to go into our closet, contemplate our navel, and figure out what these symbols mean. The Scriptures always interpret themselves. So Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit... He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. And this is where we get into this discussion I pointed out last time over interpretation. And I'll just briefly run through the options. The first option you'll hear some people say, well, un- unfruitful means that this is a non—I mean, this is a, a, a not a genuine believer, not a true believer, because they weren't genuinely saved. And I pointed out last time that that category of a professing believer is non-existent in the Scripture. You have professing Christians, but that's different. And, and I really want to emphasize this. Make sure you understand the difference. I can say I, I'm a Christian because I go to the uh, Methopresbyterian Church, but that doesn't mean I'm really saved. That's, that is making a profession of being a Christian. That's different from saying I am a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, I just profess faith in Christ. And when you read the literature on this, boy, it's real easy. Or you get involved in discussions with somebody, it's real easy if you don't define these terms to slip and slide. It gets real messy. And go, they go from one side to the other. Everybody believes that they're professing Christians. But they'll, as soon as they start talking about professing Christians, next thing you know what they're really talking about is a professing believer. And a professing believer is someone who's saved. Option number two is that the believers that are... Uh, so option number one is believers that uh, it's a professing, uh, not genuine. They aren't really saved, so they're taken away. Option number two is that these believers that are taken away, the branches that are taken away, represent believers who lose their salvation. Of course, we know that's not true. And then option three is that un- the unfruitful branches are Christians who will experience divine discipline in time, both positively and negative, let me say, or lose rewards in eternity. And when we look at the unfruitful Christian in verse 1, the branch in me that does not bear fruit, what we'll see is this can be an immature believer who hasn't matured yet to the point where he's producing fruit. And that's where understanding viticulture of the day helps understand the principle. Another exegetical point is that John uses this phrase, in me, in a different way than Paul uses the phrase in Christ. I went through this last time. In me is used some 16 times in the New Testament, and when it involves persons in the Godhead, it always speaks about their intimate relationship. It's not just a positional reality. So, in me indicates fellowship. Now, what we have in in these verses, starting in verse 2, Jesus says, every branch in me. Now you notice there's something left out there. Every branch in me. Let me read these to you and you listen to what what I say. 
every time I see in me in this passage. Uh, verse 2 says, Every branch in me, verse 4, abide in me, and I in you, as the, and then, um, uh, uh, unless you abide in me, at the end of verse 4. And then verse 5 says, uh, He who abides in me, Verse 6 says, anyone who does not abide in me. Verse 7, abide in me. My words abide in you. So every time we have the phrase, in me, with the exception of verse 2, what else is there? Did you hear it? The verb abide. Every place, six times you have in me in the passage. But uh, one of them, uh, only one of them does not have abide. In that first usage, abide is just ellipsized. It's, here's a good word for you, it's elited. Don't you love that? I just love learning a new word. Ellipsis is when a word is left out. That's a noun. Elated is when a it's not ellipsized. It's not really the correct term. It is elided, E-L-I-D-E-D. So, just at least you'll learn something when you leave here tonight. Um, so, the word that is elided in verse two is abide. Every branch abiding in me. It is understood from the context that at the very beginning, when he says every branch in me, he's talking about every branch abiding in me. It's just that it's left out. This is you find this many times in literature and in language. It's just understood from the context that he's talking about a branch that it's abiding. So the concept of in me throughout this section is a term that is uh, related to and emphasizes fellowship. We see this in other passages in the same context in John, John 16:33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. See, the believer only has peace when he's in fellowship with God. When he's not in fellowship with God, he doesn't have that peace. Uh, we see this in our chart. Uh, we have positional reality in Christ when we're baptized by the Spirit, but then we have ongoing relationship with Jesus. But when we disobey him when we sin then we're out of fellowship and we're walking in darkness we're not walking in the light anymore and then we confess our sin and of course we're back in fellowship and the principle is to maintain that ongoing walking by the spirit which is we're going to see here is tantamount to abiding in the spirit how do we know that let me give you a preview of where we're going here look down to verse um, five. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him does what? Bears much fruit. So what is the sole and necessary condition for producing fruit in John 15.5? The one thing that you have to have to produce fruit. It's abiding in me. If you don't abide, you don't produce fruit. So you have two types of believers. You have abiding believers who produce fruit, and then what, we'll, what we see is in verse 6 is the, the branch that doesn't abide that doesn't produce fruit. Now, 
the, of course, you all know that the key passage that talks about fruit production is over in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. What is the sole and necessary condition in Galatians 5, 16 to 25 for fruit production? Walking by the Spirit. So if Paul says you've got to walk by the Spirit in order to produce fruit, and you can't produce fruit unless you're walking by the Spirit, and Jesus says you have to abide in me in order to produce fruit, and if you don't abide in me, you don't produce fruit, what's the relationship between walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ? They're the same thing. They're just looking at it from the role of the Spirit in Galatians 5 and the role of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity in the spiritual life, in John 15. But they're tantamount to the same thing. If you're walking by the Spirit, you're abiding in Christ. And, and then if we go to Galatians, I mean Ephesians chapter 5, and from about verses 3 down to verse 7, it talks about, and there's a... There's a um, um, a textual problem there. In New American Standard, NIV, and some others, it says walking in the light, but in the majority text, it says walking in the Spirit. And if you walk in the light or walk in the Spirit, depending on how you take that, we'll look at that later, uh, you produce what? Truth and righteousness, and it's the fruit of the Spirit again. And then you go down a few, a few verses later in Ephesians chapter 5, and you come to Ephesians 5.16, which says... Be filled with the Spirit. You see, what I'm doing here is I'm connecting dots by comparing scriptures, and we're looking at this concept of fruit production from Hebrews 6, and we're going to tie all these things together to show that the indispensable reality in fruit production is having that ongoing fellowship with the Godhead. And when we're in right relationship with the Godhead abiding in Christ, walking by the Spirit, and applying the Word, then the result is that fruit is produced in our life. And that fruit is defined in Galatians 5, uh, 21, 22, 23, as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. All of this, it's character. It's the character of Christ that's being produced in us as we're as our mentality is being transformed, Romans twelve two. So that just pulls all these different things together. That's where we're headed. So in John fifteen two, we read, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he lifts up. And the Greek word here is the word iro. It's a present active indicative and just means that, it, that just representing the action at that particular time, the, the uh, vine dresser lifts it up. But, of course, we have a uh, certain controversy over this, whether iro should be understood as lifting up or, as some people take it, as uh, uh, cutting away or taking away. In the Gospel of John... It is the word iro is used 24 times, and in 10 of the 24 times it means to lift up. So in the other 14 times it means to cut away. So it could be either one. But it's used in conjunction here with another verb, kath iro. You see the similarity in the two words? Iro and kath iro. Kath iro is the word that is translated pruning, dealing with the branch that bears fruit. So every branch in me that does not bear fruit, 
iro. Every branch that does bear fruit, kathiro. Kathiro is the root iro plus the Greek preposition kata attached to it, which intensifies it. What's interesting is kathiro is related to the verb katharizo, which mean, which is where we get our English word cauterize, and it means to purify or to cleanse, and that's that word that we find in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see how I'm connecting the dots here? Everybody's looking real intense, like either they're lost. Uh, you know, you just, uh, I'm tying things together here. It's, it's stringing it all together, but that's showing this comparison of Scripture with Scripture. So, what Jesus says here is, Every branch abiding in me that does not bear fruit, he either takes it away or he lifts it up. Now, uh, there are some scholars, R.K. Harrison argues that uh, technically Iro, uh, that we find here in this passage, doesn't comes from the root which means to lift, it does not come from a verb, a similar verb, ireo, which means to take away. And he argues that this is the word that was used in agricultural context. Kathiro definitely was, and there's clear indication in contemporary first century literature that when the, uh, the, the laborers who went out into the field and pruned the branches uh, that the word that was used in the agricultural literature was kathiro. But Jesus is also using it because it's a play on words that sounds like iro, and it also relates to the whole concept of cleansing and purification that has to take place in the believer's life in order for fruit to be produced. There has to be ongoing forgiveness of sins. So he's being uh, very economical in his use of words, and it's doing triple duty. Now, Pliny the Elder, and I've mentioned him before, uh, Pliny the Elder was a Roman naturalist. We only have one work that survives of his writings, and that is his book on natural science. And in that book, he gives us a description of what was the typical practice of, of pruning in the ancient world. He says, thus there are two kinds of main branches describing that, that the, the vine, the grapevine. The shoot which comes out of the hard timber and promises wood for the next year is called a leafy shoot. Okay, now what he's describing here is you have your main trunk of the vine and it's going to put out a branch. And this promises that next year, this year it's not producing any fruit, but it promises that next year, if it's allowed to grow, it's going to thicken up and it will produce for next year. So it has that promise of future production. It's just too young to produce fruit this year. And he says this is called the leafy shoot, or else when it is above the scar, now the scar be caused because the Romans introduced the concept of tying, uh, uh, taking the uh, grapevine and tying it up to a trellis. Before that, the Jews would just sort of let it uh, trail along the ground, or they would prop it up with a rock. But the, uh, the uh, Romans introduced the idea of using a trellis to tie the, the uh, uh, br- branches of the vine up so that uh, there would be greater airflow, the dew would evaporate more quickly, there would be less uh, loss and less rotting of the fruit. 
So it says if, if this branch occurs above the scar, it's a fruit-bearing shoot, whereas the other kind of shoot that springs from a year-old branch is always a fruit-bearer. There is also left underneath the crossbar a shoot called the keeper. This is a young branch, not longer than three buds, which will, will provide wood next year if the vine's luxurious growth has used itself up. And another shoot next to it, the size of a wart called the pilferer, is also left in case the keeper shoot should fail. So what he is saying here is describing this uh, fact that there's two or three different kinds of branches, depending on their location on the, on the basic stem, that would come out that were left. They weren't cut off. They were lifted up and supported because, so that they would grow and be stronger, and next year they would produce fruit. Now, if we apply that to what we see here in Jesus' analogy, uh, and one other point, is that kind of pruning took place in the spring. What time of year is it? It's the spring. So I, one of the things that um, uh, Erickson points out is that one of the problems is that, that uh, there were two different times during the year when the uh, when uh, a, a vine would be pruned, there is a major pruning that takes place in the fall as the plant is going dormant for the winter, and then there was this other kind of pruning that just sort of cleaned things up for fruit production during the summer, take cut off the suckers that were just uh, basically pulling away uh, a lot of energy from the plant and not allowing that energy to go into the fruit. And so what this is talking about, this first one, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. That's what they would do. They would come along, they would cut off these suckers, and they would lift up or support these other branches that wouldn't produce fruit this year, but they would for the next year. So that's analogous to the young, uh, immature believer who hasn't grown enough to produce fruit. And so this is the process showing how uh, God comes along and encourages the young believer and, as it were, props them up and encourages them so that as they continue to grow, then down the road they will be able to produce fruit. Remember, it's completely inconsistent to think that this is either a loss of salvation or one that wasn't truly saved because Jesus clearly says the branch is in him. No matter what else you do, you've got this is a branch that's in him. So this indicates the young believer. Then the next phrase, let's go back to the verse. Every branch that bears fruit. So we have a branch that doesn't bear fruit, but that is abiding. Then we have a branch that bears fruit. He prunes it. And this is a uh, a word that is used for cutting back the, the it's a fruit bearing branch and it's just cutting off the suckers and the other little leaves and stuff that will take energy away from the fruit that's already there and he uses the word kathiro uh, for, for pruning. Now if you look in your Bibles down to verse 3 there's a play on words there because in verse 3 you have the noun you are already clean katharos clean. Now, this is a word that's really packed with meaning because this is the same word that Jesus used back in John 13.10. I think I've got a slide for that. Yeah, John 13.10, where Jesus says to Peter, he who is bathed 
needs only to wash his feet, but is what? Completely clean. Katharos. And you all, second person plural, you all are clean, but not all of you. Why weren't they all clean? Not because they hadn't taken a bath, but because Judas had not been expelled from their midst yet. So he is talking about the fact that they're all clean. So this is synonymous with saying, you are all believers. You are all positionally cleansed. So when we go back to John uh, 15, uh, 3, and we find this word, or 15, 2, and we find this uh, word used, or the verb form, katharo, that every branch that bears fruit he prunes... That's talking about that ongoing cleansing, just when we confess our sins, that ongoing cleansing that allows fruit to continue to be uh, produced as we grow. So that every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So you have different levels of fruit production. You have every branch that does what? Bears fruit. It's going to be pruned so it can bear more fruit. And then later on, we're going to run into the branch that bears much fruit. So every believer is going to differ in terms of the amount of fruit that is, product, that is produced. Some are going to produce fruit. Some are going to produce more fruit. Some are going to produce uh, much fruit. It kind of reminds you of the parable of the uh, soils in Matthew and in Luke, where the soil that produces at the end some produces tenfold some twentyfold some a hundredfold so you have different levels of production in the believer's life so then we come to verse 4 now we get the mandate he's given us the analogy in verses 1 and 2 and now he gives a mandate and addresses the disciples directly with the second person plural man, uh, imperative, abide in me. It's a present imperative indicating ongoing abiding. This is what is to characterize a believer's life as standard operating procedure. Abide in me and I in you. Now let me just add something. One of the things that, that happens when you read especially the lordship literature is they want abide to be semantically equivalent to the word faith. That the one who abides is the one who believes in Jesus. He's saved. They make it positional. But if it's positional, all you have to do is test your hypothesis by doing a little word substitution. Believe in me and I believe in you. Why would Jesus want to believe in me? See, this doesn't even make sense. You can't substitute faith for abiding and have any of this make sense makes sense. Uh, believe in me and I believe in you as the uh, branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it believes in the vine. Or later on when we get down to uh, verse 7, if you believe in me and my words believe in you. See, it, it, it doesn't make sense to take abiding as a synonym uh, for belief. So it is relational. Jesus said, we're to have fellowship, have an intimate abiding in Him. This isn't positional. This isn't uh, abstract. This is relational. This is talking about having a rich, deep, ongoing, personal rapport with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's reciprocal. 
Abide in me and what? I in you. It's a two-way road here. It is not simply I'm going to be in fellowship with the Lord. See, that that's another uh, aspect of this. But this is talking about the fact that, that, that there is... And if you look at that vine analogy, there's stuff going on between the branch and the and the vine. It's a reciprocal relationship. So Jesus says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Now this is really important. The branch cannot produce fruit on its own. See, the spiritual life is a supernatural life. It goes far beyond morality. This is one of the hardest things for a lot of Christians to catch is that the Christian life isn't about being good and being moral. It's not about being immoral either, but it's about walking by means of the Spirit. He's the one who produces the real Christian virtue and integrity in the individual's life. It's not a matter of going out and pulling yourself up by your moral bootstraps and you've been a drunk or you've been a drug addict or you've been immoral or you've been a liar or you've been lazy or a cheater, whatever it is you've been, and now you're going to turn over a new leaf because you've been saved and you're going to live better. It isn't going to work. Paul tried it in Romans 7, and he couldn't get anywhere until he realized the dynamic of living by the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. So, Jesus is pointing out here is that you can't do it on your own. The branch has to have that direct, nourishing relationship with the vine. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Unless we're abiding in Christ, there is no Christian life. There's no fruit production. There's no growth. There's no nourishment. Nothing happens. And then he goes on to explain this a little more. Uh, He's going to go back to the basic principle. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. That is the sole and exclusive condition here for producing fruit. And what is producing fruit? It is the manifestation of the character of Christ from a mature, uh, mature plant, mature believer. And then in verse 6 he uses a Third class conditional if. Remember the Greek has different ways of expressing if. If and it's and it's probably so, that's a first class condition. If and it's probably not so, that's a second class condition. And if and it could be either way, it's your true hypothetical. If anyone does not abide in me, you may or you may not. It emphasizes the individual volition of the believer. It's up to you whether or not you're going to abide in Christ. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, He is cast out as a branch and is withered. This is judgment. This is divine discipline. This is what happens in the fall pruning process. In the fall, after the fruit has been produced, then the workers come out and they cut off the branches that are old, the branches that didn't bear fruit, and they trim up the plants to prepare it for that dormancy period. And after they've cleaned everything up, they pile it all up and they burn it in the field. That's what Jesus is talking about. It is the imagery of of what was actually happening in the fields. They would take all the dead uh, branches and stumps and rotten, uh, rotten branches and everything else, and they would pile it up and they would they would burn it. 
that's the same thing. Remember, I used a quote from Pliny in relationship to to uh, Hebrews chapter 6, 7, and 8, where it talks about burning there as a sign of judgment. He said that at, at, at the, after the harvest, uh, everything in the field would be burned. There are certain chemicals that come from burning, from uh, the ashes of the fire that then go back and provide nourishment for the soil, and it cleanses the soil so that next year it can produce even more fruit. So this is part of that that process, it is not to be understood when he says that they're gathered and thrown into the fire and are burned, that this is the lake of fire. It is simply talking about uh, judgment or discipline on the unfruitful believer for failing to be fruitful. And then in verse 7 he says, If you abide in me, third class condition again, and my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. It impacts your prayer life. It's that same principle that you have over in uh, Psalm uh, 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Ah, but if you don't regard iniquity in your heart, if you are in fellowship, then the Lord will hear you. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 7. If you're in fellowship with him, then there is genuine communication in prayer. Now, as we come to verse 7, it uses this word abide, which has been the key word all the way through this section. It is uh, used ten times in six verses. Fruit was used six times in six verses. So what's he talking about? It's real easy to figure out just from the proportion of the words used there. It's abiding for the purpose of fruit production. So... Then he concludes in verse 8 saying, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. See, a disciple is something that goes beyond just being a believer. A lot of people get confused on that. They think that the qualifications for being a disciple are the same as for getting into heaven. But Jesus makes a distinction between what is required to get into heaven, in other words, what is required to be saved, which is trusting in Christ, and what's required to go on beyond that, which is discipleship. Discipleship has conditions upon you. You have to do things. You have, Jesus said in Luke, you have to be willing to take up your cross daily and follow me. That's not talking about getting saved. That's talking about being a disciple. The word disciple from the Greek word mathetes means to be a learner, a student, someone who wants to acquire uh, knowledge and skill in the knowledge, someone who wants to go beyond simply being uh, in the family. He wants to be a mature, productive member of the family and glorify God. It's related to bearing much fruit. It's not related to the branch that does not bear fruit. So when we come to this chapter, and then we go back and take this and plug what we learned there into Hebrews 6. Let's just wrap this up. Verse 7, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated. That's talking. That's the same concept of bearing fruit, whether it's bearing fruit, more fruit, or much fruit. It's the concept of bearing, bearing fruit 
as a result of abiding. The whole concept of drinking in the rain that comes upon it is that concept of abiding. The contrast is to the soil that bears thorns and briars. That's the branch that is not abiding and doesn't produce fruit. But here it's producing thorns and briars and is disqualified and near to being cursed. It's showing it's that it's on the verge of uh, receiving divine judgment whose end is to be burned. That is simply uh, uh, the agricultural reality is that the, the such soil would, would be burned in order to clear it off and prepare it for for production. It's not talking about a judgment. It's part of the illustration. So now that we've looked at John 15, we have a good understanding of what those dynamics are to produce spiritual fruit. We have to abide in Christ. And it's connected to not only abiding in Him, but letting what? My words abide in you. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, I'm going to have a good relationship with Jesus and I'm going to be in fellowship with the Lord. But the other part of the equation is I've got to let His words have that ongoing relationship and impact in me. It's not about getting into fellowship. It's about staying there. That's what abide means. Minnow means to stay, to remain, to dwell, to stay someplace. It's not about just getting in fellowship. First John 1 9 is all First John 1 9 is is a recovery, grace recovery tool. It gets us back to the place where production can take place. It doesn't produce anything. And this is one of the problems I think people get into is they think, well, you know, as long as I keep confessing my sin, I had somebody tell me not long ago, well, I just keep short accounts with God, I keep confessing my sins. And I looked at this guy's life, and he just keeps committing the same sins over and over again, never changes anything in his life, but he thinks everything's going to be fine because I keep confessing him. Well, there's no application. There's no abiding. You're just like a yo-yo. You're just bouncing in and out all day long. And you think because at the end of the day you confess your sins that you can go through the same process and live the same life and do it all the same way tomorrow, but you're not going to get anywhere. If you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. You're not going to get anywhere in the Christian life except bounce back and forth in and out of fellowship. It's not about getting in fellowship. John 15 tells us it's about staying in fellowship, and Galatians is going to tell us that it's about walking by the Spirit. And we'll get there next week. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening and to go over these passages and to understand this imagery to see how it shows us what the Christian life is all about and how you are working in our lives to produce uh, fruit, service, and production in character that will last for eternity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.